Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is Imagining a new normal towards social justice. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's Alternative to Women's Hour. I am absolutely buzzing to be joined today by Lola Olafemi, who is a black feminist writer, organiser, co-author of A Fly Girl's Guide to University and author of Feminism Interrupted, Disrupting Power. Oh my God. Like, I am not worthy. Lola, say hello, to the, say hello to the listeners. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Chantel. I first saw you speaking, right? It must be about four years ago now when you were doing your undergrad at Cambridge. And I, it was my first time I'd ever been to Cambridge, right? And I was, I think I was a first year PhD student. And I heard you speak. And I said to my friend that I was with, I said, who is that? right I'm in this elite space which I've never been in before and I'm like I I feel weird about being here and then I've got this superbly spoken radical black woman on stage that also is dressed in an absolutely amazing way I know that's what feminists say but like I was just like who is this literally fly girl in the middle of Cambridge University she was like that's Lola and honestly, since then, I have just been watching you like go from strength to strength. Like oh. it's been such a pleasure to watch you go through. Like and now, reading this book, Feminism Interrupted, like it is just superb. Oh, thank you so much. I was saying it's it's nice to have people who you respect say nice things about your work and really engage with it. So yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you about it. It might help our listeners. And as I say on the podcast, I've been saying more recently, like if you don't know Lola, then get to know. But if you don't know, we're just going to say a little bit about how Lola came to write this book. So I um, did quite a bit of organising when I was at university. I've done organising inside and outside of um, institutions. And um, Pluto were coming up with uh, this idea for a series of books that gave a critical kind of introduction to big topics that young people were thinking about. And so they approached me and asked whether I would be interested in writing about feminism. And at university, I'd been heavily involved in the women's campaign. I was also a women's officer afterwards. And for me, feminism was the frame through which I came to critical thinking before university and whilst I was at university. It, It was the frame that allowed me to kind of ask I don't know, big questions about the way the world was organised. It was the frame that, to me, was the most generative in terms of building a political commitment or a political ethos to a set of ideas. Um, And it was also the frame that was the most, when I was um, on a student, the most lively in terms of um, what was happening in terms of student organising. And so there was a, a huge community of black feminists and 
feminist organisers in um, at Cambridge thinking through things like sexual violence, thinking about marketization, thinking about exploitation of workers in the university, think about free education. And so that really shaped my understanding of or, or was or was a big um, driver in shaping my understanding of feminism as a practice and as a political practice. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of jumped at the opportunity to write about this because I wanted to, I guess, give people the same introduction that I'd been given to this frame. So thinking about feminism as a political methodology that we can use to um, make demands for our freedom and the freedom of other people and thinking through um, feminism's connections to obviously things like capitalism, uh, critique of capitalism, it's a critique of labour, it's critique of exploitation um, and so on. Um, Yeah, and I guess um, for me, part of wanting to write the book was also responding to the environment in which feminism is situated in now, right? And one of the big kind of arguments of the book is that neoliberalism, and I define neoliberalism um, in the book as a a set of uh, policies and practices by governments and NGOs in the last decade or so that have resulted in extraction and redistribution of public resources from the working class upwards, really like decimated uh, infrastructures of social care through austerity and privatised and individualised the ways that we relate to one another. So I wanted to make the argument that the feminism that emerges from that kind of political environment is one that is kind of devoid of political ambition, I would say. Um, One that is obsessed with the individual, one that is obsessed with climbing ladders and hierarchies and naturalising some women's exploitation so that it becomes a normal part of other women's success. Um, And yeah, and so I wanted to make the argument that is not how how we should come to understand what feminism is and what it offers us as a political frame. And so trying to find ways to take the conversations that I was having with organisers on a kind of grassroots level and to put them in a book to say actually feminism is concerned with the the state it's concerned with police brutality it's uh, concerned with sex work with um, transmisogyny with the prison with the border and that it shouldn't be kind of gutted of its potential or it shouldn't be reduced to simply um, bland notions of success or um, notions of uh, yeah success at the expense of another person right so I wanted to make a, a critique of that individualized the, the, the way that feminism or at least liberal feminism in the mainstream has dulled our imaginations in terms of the things that we could and should be demanding like you talking about individualism and thinking about sort of more popularized quote-unquote feminisms that's one of the things that I think I have always sort of struggled a little bit with because as well as knowing that it's about the politics like growing up and not necessarily having the role models around you or people around you that are engaged with this kind of thinking of of, I mean I don't I mean I don't want to call it radical I feel like like what you're saying it's like a, a way of thinking in a more collectivized way And then kind of seeing people pop up in the public eye that sort of represent me in the very superficial terms, like thinking about feminism that maybe incorporates blackness that actually is just liberal. Like it's, it's been really difficult coming to terms for me personally with the fact that representation isn't enough. Mm. And I feel like it's something that I have to kind of come back to like almost daily and this book is just such a big, big slap in my face, like Chantelle 
you need to be thinking about how people are thinking about how we get to freedom and mm. that freedom isn't something that should be individualized. Like yeah. if we're not thinking about sex workers, then it's not feminism. If we're not thinking about trans women, trans men, it's not feminism. Like yeah. if we're not thinking about non-binary people, it's not feminism. If we're not thinking about people that we that you tackle actually very well, people that are positioned as quote unquote needing to be incarcerated, then it's yeah. not feminism. Yeah. And I feel like that strand throughout the whole book just really pushes us to think think much mm. more emancipatory that liberation can't come from an individual yeah feminism pushes me in a way or the type of feminism you're talking about pushes me to be better but it also pushes me in a way that it's not easy to do in the day-to-day yeah. but that doesn't yeah. mean it's not something that we should be doing yeah. um, and look I think it's um, a question of thinking about feminism's genealogies, right? Like when people will ask me what I define feminism as or what I think about it, I think about it as a shifting and myriad set of, of practices and, and purposes, right? I don't like to be too prescriptive because I understand that like feminism looks different in the hands of Marxists, communists, policymakers, uh, family abolitionists, social reproductionists, etc. cetera. Do, do you understand what I mean? And And for me, when I was coming to understand the difference between radical feminism and a liberal feminism. I really went back to black women's formations in the 70s and 80s in this country, thinking about organisations like OWAD, the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent that was founded in um, 1978, thinking about Brixton Black Women's Group that was founded in 1973, thinking about people, the legacies of work of people like Gail Lewis, Beverly Bryan, Suzanne Skay, Stella Daddy, Gerlin Bean, um, Sylvia Eric, like so many other people and I think I started the book off with the chapter know your history but I wanted to answer that exact question right and what I kind of found was that all of these black women's political formations the things that they were organizing around were all things material and local to their community so they were thinking about how capitalism traps us in structures of poverty and what it means as a black person to have a closer proximity or the closest proximity to violence right to experience police brutality they set up political education workshops and libraries where people could come and seek information not only related to their history but also relating to radical practice they were at the forefront of things like kind of organizing around um, virginity testing that was happening happening at Heathrow Airport. They were really, really invested in thinking about structures. That, to me, really informed my understanding of of what feminism is, right? That feminism is a collective plea. It's It's a collective project about what the world could be, how we could live, absent of all of the structures that place us in danger. The kind of sleight of hand that liberal feminism does really well is lower the stakes, it reduces it reduces the stakes so that feminism you no longer have to sacrifice or put anything on the line in order to call yourself a feminist right you can exist comfortably calling yourself a feminism espousing a particular kind of commitment to a political ethos without with absolutely no consequences whereas if we look back to those radical genealogies not only were these women putting their lives on the line in many cases they were sacrificing their education they were sacrificing so many things in order to build at a community level essentially try and transform their own conditions that to me is where I always return to when I'm thinking about what feminism is and, and I guess what it what it should do for us honestly I could just sit here and listen to you all day <laughs> can it just 
it pushes me I try to do feminism as much as I can like in my everyday but Mm. reading texts like this show me what are the things that I can do further like how can I how can I exist in a way that contributes to this collective effort Mm. and I think it really takes exceptional scholarly crafting and work to do this type of text and that's why like I just think it's such a brilliant introduction to all the things you've just been talking about and more it's not just an introduction like that's what's so powerful about it it's an introduction and a history of feminism but it's also a call to arms with very specific things that can be done which is just absolutely brilliant I wanted to sort of express a little bit like what you do in the book how inspiring people your age are right now to me like the people that inspire me the most to do better to think more radically and to imagine what freedom could look like are is your groups your generation and what is really interesting about that is there's only sort of three to four years between us like there's like like, I'm not that much older than you but (laughs) it feels like kind of feels like a big difference in generation because I was talking about things like uh, me being the last year of having lower tuition fees like you guys having the high tuition fees like like the coalition government being like mm. at the height of like your final few mm. years in sick formal college and like the digitizing the more accessible ways of learning about feminism solidarities collectivities and just radical politics has become much more people are speaking to it more and mm. what I what we were talking about before is I was saying that it's so impressive that people are coming to this stuff so much earlier now and mm. And it's to the 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 amount of like middle class, like older, particularly women that just can't handle like mm. how careful and sensitive, but also radical and important your conversations are. And you talk about that really well throughout the book. Your generation, albeit only three years below mine, are just absolutely paving the way for all of us, I feel. And yeah, I was wondering if you could talk to a little bit more about how that you've sort of seen that as well, like younger people being much more exploring these ideas much more mm-hmm. than they maybe did before. Like I, I was sort of saying that for me, it was about surviving in silence, particularly mm. undergrad. But that's, it's sort of, it's got a little bit, it's, it's got more of a kick now. Like we were saying before, it's really interesting in the way that every kind of dream of stability has been shattered for a certain kind of generation. And I, I would even include you in that. Before, maybe if there were a dream of like, property ownership or if there was a dream of a stable employment or if there was a dream of like a secure nuclear family whatever for, for so many young people now that they're, they're growing up in in the wake of kind of ecological crisis however many multiple crises of capitalism's death making machines there are etc i think they're growing up in in a time and being called to think critically by their own conditions and i think back to like a specific internet moment maybe people would find cringy now but at the time was incredibly productive in terms of people using the internet and using blogs, using Facebook groups to really build critical consciousness. There's a limit to to how that operates. And it was also kind of propelled really by movements like Black Lives Matter, etc. That happened in the UK and the introduction of fees. There was a kind of big political moment in which people were being really asked to think about the world around them and to think about the way that the world was structured and how it dispossessed them and how they might organize collectively not regain control but in order to 
to change what they saw couldn't be changed through electoral politics or or through policy and NGO or through, you know, um, all of those other routes that we're told are the legitimate sources for social transformation. And yeah, so I think I think it's really interesting. And, and one thing that I wanted to I do with the book was not not to insult the intelligence of anybody coming to critical thinking, right? Because it doesn't matter what age you are, you might be 16, you might be like 56, it really doesn't matter. I wanted to hold dear or hold close the idea that like, somebody coming to this political frame deserves to come to it and have the big things discussed, have capitalism addressed, have things like prison abolition put forward as a feminist principle, instead of kind of saying, okay, we start with liberal ideas, and then we move forward. Because I don't necessarily think that that's true as a political um, journey. I think everyone's political journey is, is different. But I think one thing that the frame that I'm using, which is an imaginative frame, does is ask us not to limit the things that we demand, essentially. Diane de Prima has this wonderful collection of essays called Revolutionary Letters. And she, she's basically talking about, like, if your dream is still the big house, the big car, the university place, you're still the enemy, right? Like, you, you need to proceed as if you can have what you demand. So ask for everything. And that's and that's the kind of frame of this book is like, let's ask for everything. Let's not pretend as if people deserve to be sacrificed for the sake of an election or deserve to be sacrificed discursively for the sake of the nation or deserve to be sacrificed kind of front of the border when we say things like oh a world without borders is not possible etc etc I also think it has something to do this is just kind of a tangent but I think it also has something to do with like what we envisage progress and transformation to look like right and I take having been involved in organizing of all kinds I take transformation as a process of enactment that begins now that, that is not something that you kind of gesture towards in the future. It is something that you can be modelled in our relations to each other, can be modelled in um, communities of care, can be modelled in the practice of mutual aid, especially, especially in kind of environments now. Um, and yeah, and, and so for me, it's really exciting to see even people younger than me using all different kinds of um, social media platforms to espouse anger and to also espouse political commitments that people two decades older than them haven't even come to yet. And also that people two decades older than them obsessed with attempting to undermine. No, exactly. That is exactly it. And like, just more like sometimes I'm like more for you if you are not taking these people seriously then you're going to get left behind because like you can't like the way that some people use age as a signifier of understanding what they should want or what Mm. we should aim for all these things Mm. it's it pisses me off so much at the moment in particular because as you say like people like yourselves, people that are younger than me right now, like that is where I'm seeing the imagination, as you say, that is where I'm seeing the vision, that is where I'm seeing the freedom, like that's not to cancel or to in any way, like not appreciate who came before and how much, how integral that stuff has been. Like you mentioned Gail Lewis, big up Gail, like she, like for me, like on, 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 like she inspires me because interpersonally that's someone that very much helped me navigate um, a very oppressive, oppressive structures. And it's Mm. like, Talking about the way that's what you do basically in the book, you you very much pay homage and recognize the genealogies of feminism, but recognize how 
we're using it now for further emancipation and it's such an inspiring thing to read particularly during this time and I just felt like after I read it I just felt really grateful as well like have the space to be able to read this that someone's published this and that you've written it like it's just it's it's written so well particularly I just want to say and I have spoken about this a little bit on Alternative to Women's Hour sometimes I have had problems with feminism but the feminism that I've had problems with is the liberal feminism that you very much lay out in the book the feminism Mm. that's not recognizing race and class the feminism that's not recognizing trans people like it isn't right for me and it's it's reading your book I think alongside of Alison Phipps's Me Not You it's like the the two pillars of how I felt for a long time I think Mm. how a lot of people have felt a long time about feminism some of us were reading it wrong and these two books sort of give us a way of sort of seeing through like this is what happens when neoliberalism and feminism come through together. Yeah. Alison's book gives a very good and very sharp critique of the ways categories like womanhood um, are inseparable from ideas of whiteness, right? And and I feel like the way that I've tried to approach feminism in my own political practice is not necessarily as like a badge or as something that I am, but as something that I'm continually coming to, like a process of reckoning, a process of becoming. And and I think that that necessarily entails that we don't expect specific frames to explain everything, right? We don't expect us to look to a certain frame to be able to really tell us everything about the way that the world is organised, that we can pick and choose from different political histories and political um, intellectual traditions because a lot of them are already intertwined in the first place. And so that's how I think about feminism. I sympathise and really understand the frustrations of uh, a generation of critical thinkers who saw the kind of emergence of feminism into the mainstream and how it kind of blew up and then morphed into a million different things. It became about humane capitalism, as Chimamanda told us, or, or... Um, stereotypes or just individualized experiences of sexism or sexual violence etc and what I guess I'm trying to argue is that once we begin to dismantle and unpick that framing we, we allow ourselves the space to be disloyal right we allow ourselves to see what this frame actually enables us to do which is to ask critical questions and it doesn't become a, a question of allegiance right so that we don't feel feminist enough or we don't have a kind of faith in the political project whatever once we open up the frame and see the way that it has been obscured and mystified by neoliberalism we're able to say okay that liberal feminism shouldn't have any claim to what feminism is, right? That it's also an insult to our intelligence to be asked to engage with trans-exclusionary radical feminists or asked to engage with anti-sex work feminists as if those concerns were legitimate or as if those concerns contribute to our understanding of what this political um, tradition can enable us to do. I never rely on the idea of unity under categories because that unity doesn't exist. We We make claims for the sake of we make claims in order to live free from violence we say things like we mobilize womanhood in the arena of representation which is how we are forced to demand or make sense of our demands but that doesn't mean necessarily that that those things exist absent of that one of the things that you say in the book is that we should possibly get rid of the term womanhood once we kind of look at what liberalism has obscured in terms of feminist thinking then we can be honest about the fact that unity under these categories doesn't exist and that that doesn't necessarily in any way 
threaten the political project that we're engaged in, right? Because the political project that we're engaged in is about being multiple. It's about being myriad. It's about being shifting. It's about being the wrong kind of woman. It's, it's so many different things that, that don't neatly fit into ideas of binaries. And, and I guess what I was trying to do with the trans misogyny chapter was to really speak to the idea that often, because obviously we live in a, in a world in which we have to make sense of our demands through an arena of representation. So in order to combat all of the forces that are trying to render trans life impossible right now, we make claims as feminists and we say things like trans women are are women, trans rights are human rights, which are absolutely necessary and important frames when we're seeing the ways that policymakers and and different groups are trying in every possible way to discriminate um, at the very least against trans people. As a feminist coming to a critical understanding, what I wanted to do in the trans misogyny um, chapter was to really outline the ways that I myself came to an understanding of what gender actually is and how it operates. That might help us actually reach those people who want to understand and have questions about gender as a a social phenomena and who don't see those questions answered, right? And then that quickly can morph into transphobia. It can morph into a certain kind of like ignorance. What I kind of wanted to do was to, to make this claim that sex that there's an argument that like sex is real and biological and gender is a social phenomenon that's about our presentation and the way that we move but once we see also sex as a as a construction sex as a a construction of a process of intelligibility that makes us recognize one another and once we recognize that there are several people living in the world that confound a rigid sex binary we understand that Any claim to to womanhood on the basis of biology makes no sense. Sex, as we understand it, is is not something that lives, that is innate. It's not something that existed prior to to our establishment of this very rigid binary. And the way that we, through gendered scripts, through surgeries, through loads of different arenas, attempt to reify that binary for the sake of our intelligibility. And I guess what I, I wanted to do with that provocation, which is not in any way a new provocation at all was to try and explain the ways in which so because of that rigid sex binary so many of us have been excluded from the uh, arena of womanhood already black women have always uh, existed on the periphery of what we understand womanhood to be so have trans women so have so many different people Um, and so the idea that when we say woman we mean all of us is is false because so many of us grew up and when we saw womanhood kind of utilized when we saw uh, womanhood being put forward as a frame through which to make demands we felt like aliens because we didn't feel included by that category and so as somebody who has already existed on the, on the periphery of uh, a category that has been mobilised for several different purposes, I gain absolutely nothing from then attempting to further gatekeep that category. And I think introducing that complication helps um, mitigate a severe, severe anxiety that I think a lot of people have in terms of their understanding of what gender is, right? Because the person who's harassing you on the street does not know what chromosomes you have. So the idea that sex is this firm, unshakable thing, in my opinion, misguided and wrong. But the second that you introduce the notion that like things might be more complicated than we've been taught to because we've been taught gender in a certain way, you you release a, a set of anxiety for people who, who are like, okay, so if the, the sex binary is not this like rigid thing that I've been told um, that it is, what does this mean for me and my life and et cetera? And, and answering those questions on a meeting people where they 
they are, I think is incredibly important because you're able to see the ways that people come to understand the function of gender. And once you understand that the function of gender is for us to make, to mobilize it in order to make demands to live free from violence and that it means nothing absent of that, even if we have our own uh, personal relationships to it, then you see how it is impossible for cis women to make demands for their freedoms that don't already uh, require the total abolition of that binary, the total abolition of, of gender as we know and understand it. It can seem really complicated. I hope that, I mean, I hope no, that that was, I don't know. you know, you clear. Honestly, like, it's so, I, for me, that is so clear. And in the chapter, it was so clear. But it also made me really angry because thinking about how much transphobia there is now, like, Obviously, it's been around for a long time, but I feel like they're stepping it up, like particularly in um, thinking about the government. So you lay it out and you've just spoken so clearly about how it's fucking bullshit. It just riles me up at the same time as there being clear reasons why that binary is violent. It, it, I also draw to, I guess, maybe more this is this maybe more of a liberal idea of like, why can't you just leave people alone? Why have I got another white middle class guardian writer i mean transphobia knows no color actually i'm just gonna say that for one second but why are you constantly writing about the threat of trans people like it is so it's just unbelievable like like an economy in it now like yeah absolutely like Um, and also i think what they've what the kind of discourse that's trying to render trans life impossible has done is really obscure the ways that our material conditions as women um have have, are not good they've never been good so like what you'll find is that because there is uh, an economy now in that kind of writing and because these are people for whom they've never been poor they've never experienced poverty that they're very much living kind of secure lives you can see the connection between being economically secure in that way and then being able to mobilize specific you know attacks on the entire communities and what i think is more interesting is the way that um one queer and trans life has always confounded uh, uh, across the world, like has always confounded in these rigid sex binaries, but also poor queer and trans people have found ways or have had to because of the way discourses swirl around them and because of being locked out of access to material resources they have always had to fend for themselves i guess when we talk about things like prison abolition or when we talk about things um like mobilizing against the state people are always like how do you do that and i think you do that through grassroots community organizing the whole swaths of the population have had to do instinctively because they have no access to specific systems of care they have no access to state recognition and so what does that mean they've had to um, uh, find ways and enable ways to deal with um, the violence that is enacted upon them in their own communities to to find DIY methods of um, medical care to find DIY methods of of getting food um, and housing to to different people and that that requires a whole that that involves um, a whole history of radical political organizing what I didn't want to do with this book was to position critique of liberal feminism 
as the work because I don't think that that's the work. That's a that's a very simple critique that we can make. We can say liberal feminism dispossesses us. Liberal feminism is an insult to our intelligence. Liberal feminism is not concerned with material conditions, etc. But what matters more is the ways in which we then, knowing that, operate in our relationship to things like electoral uh, politics, our relationships to grassroots organising, how we organise from where we are locally and how that might be able to provide a blueprint for the tr- kinds of transformations that we're looking for and interested in. 75% agree with that, Lola. But I only think that I'm like 25% on what I've seen in institutions or in policy making or just thinking about the economy of equality and diversity as a whole. Liberalism and liberal feminism, I have found much more difficult to articulate its violences, its way of inhibiting lives, so much harder to point out and so much harder to get people to recognise how problematic this is. And I think it does come back to your point about the notion of womanhood and black women not being included in that, working class people not being included in that as a whole. I guess what I'm thinking is, I, I do agree that it has to come from the local and it has to be grassroots organizing however I I just don't want to take my eye off these liberals because I feel like they are really dangerous Mm. like if we're talking about if we're talking about if we're talking about racism if we're talking about the way they mobilize womanhood to benefit themselves to the detriment Mm. of other groups like I, I don't know it's having that personal experience with quite a lot of the ways that liberalism can inhibit and block people from economic, social, cultural stability, whatever that looks like. I don't know, it just feels, it feels like, I think it was a, it was a video I was watching recently of Siva, Sivananden, talking about Enoch Powell will give a speech, Tories will talk about implementing it, then the Labour Party will legislate it. And I know that's sort of going into party politics a bit there, Mm. but it just makes me think about that, how these acceptable faces, like, end up sort of actually being gatekeepers and they're really difficult to argue with at times I think Mm. we have the tools to do it we have the tools to do it of course but I just they do have quite a lot of power I often feel I think also what's interesting is how seductive that can be right like also in the arena representation we shouldn't pretend as if people of colour, as if marginalised groups can't also be co-opted for those exact purposes, right? And I think that the counter to that is a radical feminism as really paying dues or being committed to the idea that no one's pain deserves to go unseen. And I think what liberals are very apt to do or what liberalism kind of does is relegate people to the realm of the unthinkable for the sake of the argument, right? liberalism will tell us that the yes some instances of policing are very bad and very corrupt but that the the main way that we can change that is to go into the force itself and to to work on reforming the police from the inside and and i think that's a really interesting argument because when you think about the deaths of black women at the hands of the state people like dorothy gross cynthia jarrett joy gardner sarah reed annabelle like landsberg a kind of provocation that i i put in the book or or put towards i guess liberalism is is the idea that are you willing as as a liberal as somebody who believes in the border the nation the state etc are you willing and believe that 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 affords you a certain set of protections are you willing to 
kind of adhere to, to the to a, a a kind of protection that um means that other people must die so that you feel protected right and i think that that's like what neoliberalism and liberalism is invested in doing in a way it's invested in the maintenance of systems that seek to address only certain kinds of pain only certain kinds of very visible pain you know the pain that is kind of argued for, uncovered to us, revealed to us through inquest, right? Only then is it really willing to do the work of radical self-reflection. But I think that that what a radical or critical politics offers in return is an embrace of complication, an embrace of the fact that there are going to be multiple kind of different sects of us working from different political traditions, intellectual traditions, all working to push a system down. And it's going to take all of us, all different angles. It doesn't necessarily, there doesn't necessarily have to be unity under one you know political party or vanguard tradition or whatever transformation in the way that we envisage it can be multiple but it can also be very chaotic there doesn't have to be a linear kind of narrative to it and that involves institutions as well that involves the abolition of our allegiance to hierarchy our allegiance to institutions our allegiance to climbing a ladder of success and that i guess that's kind of going back to what i said earlier that i what i mean by um the idea that radical politics encourages us to to stake something we have to give up our idea that that the we could make loads of money if we did x or if we gave into the representation economy or if we you know sold our trauma in this way or whatever there are ways that we could be if we had no morals very rich but because we believe that we could live in a different way there are sacrifices that we make that ensure that we're able to remain committed to those principles and yeah and so i see i completely understand what you're saying in terms of like making sure we keep an eye on liberals and like engaging with institutions in that way but i think it's more about the way it's more about the strategies that we use in in that engagement right like a set of non-reformist reforms a set of a loose relationship to institutions not one of deference not one but, but one that is critical 100 percent. and i just want to be clear i i'm not down for dancing with liberals it's more yeah. that i'm just like no, no, it's, no, more I I'm like, it's more that i'm like they scare me actually mm. like, they do scare me probably more than skinheads i'm not gonna lie <laughs> right now it would be really great Lola to talk a little bit about the chapter on abolition and Mm. again like another thing that I'm really sort of learning and coming to that has been just so refreshing to read it read about it written in such a I mean like Andrew Davis like absolute legend like been reading Andrew for a long time but I feel like there's a new different modes of talking about abolition in context in a way that's contextualized like thinking about Sisters Uncut, we had a Via Sarah Day on the podcast. And I guess also this relates to the points that you were just making about things not fitting into one compact box. And Mm. that's been something that I found really difficult. And I think it's because of the way that I've been brought up to think about epistemology. And that has to be unlearned. That Mm. has to be unlearned because there isn't a right answer. There's lots of different ways of, of being a collective and entering a vision or thinking a way that is radical and freeing because I'm excited that I'm learning about how to unlearn categorization all the time yeah I think and I think on the question of prison abolition I see prison abolition as I guess the ultimate imaginative political project and and Jackie Wang says this thing of like prison is a problem of thought but it can only be unthought if we refuse to capitulate to the realism of the present and I think that that is such apt oh way of God. thinking about 
yeah like it's such an odd way of, of thinking about like all of these discourses that separate us right so there is the bad criminal who deserves everything that happens to them and then there is the good free citizen that deserves the right to build a life and to have a family and to you know be free from violence right what I think abolitionists are asking us to consider or what Prison Abolitionist Project is about, is about thinking about ways that we might craft a society in which the designation criminal becomes impossible. But we might also look at the root causes of crime as we understand it. Like we might think about what causes people to act in certain ways, right? I look to like Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, etc. for really clarifying how like feminism is involved in in that abolitionist project in that it is about improving conditions, right? Through mechanisms of justice. So so looking about ways that we might advocate for things like free education, free and secure housing for all, free access to um to medical care no matter who you are. Thinking about ways that we might bring into raise children collectively and raise children outside of like isolated nuclear families in a way that allows us to really think about the dangers of socialization and to think about how ideas of aggression and domination are built into the way that men are so socialized versus um, everybody else, etc. Once those problems are addressed, we might be able to really think about the ways other means of holding people accountable, essentially. And I also think it asks us to, to recognize that prisons are relatively new inventions, right? That we think of the prison as this permanent thing that has always existed to which there is no alternative. But that's just not true. There are myriad of ways that people can be held accountable by their communities. But there are also ways that those methods of accountability have been happening for centuries. There are whole communities for whom calling the police and the criminal justice system has meant death. It has meant death in detention. It has meant death at a point of contact. It has meant lengthy inquests. And so there are ways in which people who have experienced violence don't get to rely on the police or the prison system have been able to to think through very severe um, instances of violence outside of those frameworks coming back to the imagination, thinking about building a society in which, you know, criminalization in that sense becomes impossible is also thinking about the ways that all of our lives are knit together. Right now, as we speak, we're implicated in the fact that, you know, people are dying in prisons. People who could very easily be released are dying in prison and detention across the world because the idea and the ideology of the prison is so, has such a grip on our culture that it is seen as inherently dangerous or impossible to release people for, for the sake of public health, for the sake of their health in a crisis. So people are morally okay with people dying in prisons as long as they are because they have been relegated to the realm of the unthinkable they've been disappeared and and the logic that we use to disappear them is a logic of they deserve that violence and i think what prison abolition is asking us to do is to not reproduce the the same violence that we seek to end and and that's like a very crucial thing right if violence has been enacted on us the, the accountability is not enacting another set of violences on somebody else accountability is not allegiance to a system in which that will also always sacrifice people who are quote unquote innocent for the sake of the bad criminal who deserves to be punished i think it's something that takes like you said like a lot of um this thinking takes a while to come to but i think that like prison abolition really tests our ability to think about 
demanding everything, demanding a world in which we can we can talk about the prison and we can talk about the abolition of, of the prison without our mind first going to, well, what about all of the murderers? What about levels of serious crime, which have been addressed quite well and very often by prison abolitionists. And I think it's just one of the rhetorical devices that we use to kind of put in place the idea that the prison is necessary. I don't think that the prison is necessary. And I also think that the criminal justice system in in many ways re-traumatizes survivors. It re-traumatizes so many of us for whom we have to prove um, that violence has been enacted on us. We know in instances of sexual violence, for example, that the majority of people who commit sexual violence are not in prison. They are in our family. They walk amongst us. They are our friends. They write the laws that protect us from other people. And so Tell the idea them. that yeah, the idea that prison <laughs> prison is an apt solution to that problem and underestimation of how we should be thinking. I like something you just said. Then is just playing on my mind so so much about social the dangers of socialization. Mm. Like that is just so powerful because it really, really makes us think, okay, the dangers, what is happening when when young people are being brought up? What are the cultures that they're growing up in? What are the Mm. things that they're exposed to? And like, Mm. it all comes down to unraveling things like patriarchy, hegemony. Mm. Like sometimes like when I get deep into these chats with people like yourselves, like it all seems very common sense. Like Mm. why can we not just do things differently? I guess one of the things that I think it'd be good to talk about or to end on, Lola, like what are the things that stop us from getting to these utopian ways of living? And I mm. use utopian in the way that not in its not in its usual description, in the way mm. that you're getting me to think more like utopia. Utopia mm. is a possibility. Utopia as an, an imagination that can be actualised. Mm. What are the things that stop us from getting to these places, to thinking about abolition in this way? I know it's a bit of a big question, but Mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like pointing out these things can be really helpful. Earlier in the season, we were talking to Alana Lentin about like racism and she was talking about the issue with racism being such a a massive structural pervasive issue across, across society is because there is investment in racism. There is investment in structures being inequitable. There is an investment in white supremacy that some people benefit from a lot and other people's do not other people do not so how can we draw out specifics of what we're up against in trying to get to these this place of freedom i think um yeah i think that is a, a really big question and for some reason it made me think of and boya did this uh, article she's like a radical poet she writes a lot about capitalism and they were like what's the biggest impediment to your writing life and she was like capitalism the the fact that i have to work in order to survive the fact that it places me in a position of precarity etc cetera, etc cetera. and so when i think about the things that like stop us from being able to imagine beyond like to think beyond the given as like sadia hartman says i think I think about those prevailing structures of violence. I think about, like you said, the investment in those um, prevailing structures of violence. And I think about the, the, the idea that um, the idea ideas like meritocracy or the idea that we too can have a slice of you know a bigger pie or that uh, we too can succeed in in ways that we've uh, been told were barred to us and that and that becomes the kind of goal that becomes the aim instead of a total reorganization um, and abolition of the way that we live now. I think also a lot of these ideas are just so hegemonic from from the time that we're born. Like there aren't many instances in a young person's life when, for example example they're asked to consider 
if the prison is right, you know, or or if the prison works even, because the prison is seen as the only option. And I think that that's what these prevailing systems of violence are so good at doing, is limiting the options. We, we see the effect of that even on demands made by certain sections of the left, right? Liberals will tell us that we're crazy for questioning beyond what we can actually achieve and that the only realm through which um, our freedom can be gained is through law and policy. And I'm interested in, in the kinds of feminism that have always rejected law and policy because they've understood that not everybody has access to that and that just because you make a law about a problem does not mean that that problem goes away. There are so many of us so far removed from those problems that we need to find ways to to strategize that involve and necessarily center those people and those experiences. It's a kind of big question. We we see the ways that on a small scale it can be undone. When people enter a critical consciousness, like it, it's really interesting when you first meet someone who's beginning to question everything because everything they know and they think is solid has begun to shatter. That is the first step in taking the imagination seriously and viewing the imagination as an effective impetus which brings things that don't exist into being. First of all, you have to think critically about where you're situated, how you're situated, the proximity to violence that it gives other people as well. Freeing your imagination, if it were, or or, or um, unshackling yourself from allegiance to these systems and structures does wonders for your ability to, to be able to think about um, what comes next or what can come now that can usher in what is coming next. That is one of the another key reason why this book is so brilliant because I feel like it can really speak to young people. It can speak to people that are older, of course, as well. Like it's such a brilliant text, but just thinking about people that are growing up on the margins and reading a text like this, it can be so just life changing. Like I'm going to say that because as you say, as you, if you begin to question the things around you, the way you mentioned meritocracy there, like I was just here like with my hands in the air, like for so long, like whether it was at school or growing up or at university or whatever, I was like, this thing is bullshit. I know I'm not stupid or I know the people around me are like, what is happening here? Like, why is it that this is positioned in this way? And just all that stuff is just mm. basically made up to suit a certain group of people. And it's mm. not, it's not how we get to get to this imagined future where we're all free. And like, I just feel like this book is such a good resource for people that have been lost as well. And I definitely cast myself as one of those people. I think also like that, that imagining freedom requires us to be okay with not knowing everything yet. There, yes. there are, there are such limits placed on our minds and our thinkings by the way that the world is organized that of course it seems impossible to imagine what freedom would actually look like. And even the language that we use to, to talk about it is not the language that will adequately describe what it is as, as a site, as a moment, as a series of moments, whatever, because we, we're, still limited in terms of what our thinking is and I think you have to be okay with sitting in in that realm of like the unknown the, the realm of the not quite there yet or the realm of the looking forward in a kind of gestural position whatever in order to um to really think about what could be as I say is the line of the book it really inspires me and you talking about being kind of being vulnerable with your thoughts and being mm. vulnerable about what you think and how you think that's something which I feel like I've tried to I've tried to be in life but I feel like it's not necessarily a destination and something you have to mm. work at like mm. 
consistently daily like always thinking I need to be pushed but lots of people and I guess this relates to what you're saying about how we imagine things people like binaries don't they they really like binaries like and I think you talk you talk about this quite a lot in the particularly in the chapter about trans misogyny but also I feel like it runs throughout the book like stop categorizing stop mm. binarizing it's mm. not that simple like free and yourself also, I think also- I love that yeah, like thinking about those binaries as like, I think people's investment in them relies on the idea that we wouldn't be able to make sense of each other without them. We've built a world in which making sense of of each other without these shorthands, without these binaries doesn't, it is impossible for us. It's like a, like trying to imagine a body without gender. Every Gender is so all-consuming. It's so um, tied into every single interaction that we have, everything um, that we think about ourselves and our body, that it's impossible to kind of imagine the genderless, etc. So I don't necessarily think that that's a, a, a worthwhile task. But I think what is a worthwhile task is dismantling our investment from the binary as a system of intelligibility, understanding that there are ways that we might relate to each other and be with each other for which we do not have names yet. And the aim is to, to, to move to, not even to move towards, but to, to usher in that site as our main kind of way of thinking instead of what we've been given, which places us in proximity to violence. Mic drop, Lola. <laughs> Absolute mic drop. That was amazing. My mind is blown, just like it was when I read the book. People need to read the book now. Get the book. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Um, we'll be doing a giveaway of the book by the podcast, so keep an eye on our socials for that. But, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Lola. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and thank you for listening, if you made it this oh. far. <laughs> you yeah, have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.